Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we are at the end of chapter 11 of our book, uh, Faith Has Its Reasons, and we are concluding our look at the evidentialist model of apologetics. And so uh, throughout this book, we're looking at four and then technically five different apologetic methods, classicalists, the evidentialists, the reformed uh, 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 epistemology, uh, and which is presuppositionalism, and then uh, we're looking at fetism, and then we're looking at kind of the author's um, take on kind of the uh, the model that they uh, wish to propose uh, to us after looking at these four, and we're coming down to uh, looking at the last bit from our authors on the evidentialist, which is looking at both the strengths uh, that they view for the evidentialist and also the weaknesses. So uh, here we're going to uh, kick off in initially with uh, what our authors view as kind of the the, 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 the reason to hold to these positions uh, the most and, and sh showing uh, exactly uh, why it's so appealing to a number of people, especially coming off of kind of the classicalist model. You know, why why uh, why reinvent the wheel if uh, the classicalist model uh, seemed to have worked for all these years of history? Well, the evidentialist uh, has these points, uh, maybe not against it, but in support of it. Well, as uh, they did in the classical apologists in chapter seven, uh, they're going to here review the most common and important observations that have been made as the noble strengths and potential weaknesses of the evidentialist model. Right, and I think they give us three of each here. So we'll kind of work through each, each of these uh, point by point. So the first one is um, with regard to the um, notable strengths. So we have notable strengths and we have uh, notable uh, weaknesses, right? So notable strengths. The first notable strength is the that the uh, evidentialists recognize that probability is unavoidable. Probability is unavoidable. Evidentialists re readily admit that the conclusions available through the inductive process of historical inquiry are probable and not certain, right? So when we look at history, we're looking at probability as opposed to, you know, deductive certainty. But they are quick to add that no decision in life is based on deductive certainty, right? <laughs> None of our, our, you know, even for me to sit in this chair, you know, it's basically a probability argument because, you know, I can't say it will, you know, I have proof that it will hold me this time. <clears throat> no, not really. It could fall apart the next time I sit in it, right? right. So they, their claim here is that um, no decision is life is based on um, uh, deductive certainty, right? All of them are probable, probability uh, uh, decisions. Deduction, they argue, can reveal whether a conclusion follows from specific premises, but it cannot tell us whether premises uh, correspond to the uh, the truth about the real world. Right. So, yes, deductive uh, arguments can say if you if these premises are true and there's a key, mm -hmm. then the conclusion is true. But the deductive argument doesn't necessarily tell us whether or not the conclusions are true. And so in all matters of fact, the evidentialists uh, maintain we are dependent on human observation and human interpretation. And of course, both of them are fallible. Right. So first, the first strength that our authors, um, Bull and Bowman, want to point out is that uh, the evidentialist recognizes that probability is unavoidable. This is how we 
run our everyday lives. And they, they want us to see that with regard to this approach. Right. right. Yep. Everything is uh, this kind of um, uh, risk uh, assessment. And so right. wh right. whether it be with uh, driving a car or with uh, where to invest uh, money, uh, you're, you're taking um, uh, an inductive risk. And so uh, we're, we're having to do that uh, even with what we can kind of consider our, our, our base truth claims uh, as, as well. Well, the second one uh, for the strengths uh, coming off of uh, the probability uh, positivity is that the, it uh, appeals, uh, the appealing method of inquiry. One of the great strengths of the evidentialist approach is uh, the use of the methods of inquiry already familiar and acceptable to many non-Christians. And so since the goal of apologetics is to persuade people that Christianity is true, or at least that is reasonable to believe it is true, arguments that employ strategies familiar to those being persuaded are so much more likely to be effective. And so when we talked about uh, all the different lawyers or all the different detectives, uh, we've had one on the show before, uh, who um, present the case to to make the claims and to try and persuade and convince you uh, the, the, the idea of God in the dock and uh, from C.S. Lewis, um, all these uh, kind of parallels to our normal lives are how we make big important decisions whether the state should take your life whether it should restrict your liberty whether or not uh, to uh, be properly informed is uh, you know you want this uh, uh, more than preponderance of the evidence you want beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to to uh, have belief uh, and in there you see the probability argument as well and so it is undeniable that evidential apologetics has enjoyed great success because of this, because we know those things like evidence demands a, ver a verdict more than a carpenter. Uh, um, you know, we, we've got uh, Jay Warner Wallace and um, various other people like uh, C.S. Lewis and, and um, uh, John Warwick Montgomery, uh, to just name a few who have uh, put out books and, and different uh, avenues of arguments. Uh, you have different scientists who are... Um, um, putting out uh, uh, responses against uh, um, atheistic uh, Darwin philosophy and and uh, and uh, kind of showing uh, why that doesn't uh, um, come about uh, without uh, a, a common designer uh, in the mix. Um, those are the things that are being appealed to by the evidentialists, and it's what's familiar in the lives of people who will make decisions based on those types of kind of argumentation. Right. So they say, we're going to argue in the way that everybody argues so that we have kind of common ground with regard to our approach, right? That's the basic idea. And so that's what our book is suggesting is a, uh, is a strength, the appealing uh, methods of inquiry. All right. And then thirdly, the third strength they point out is that um, evidentialists stresses this particular approach, stresses the factual evidence, right? And of course, that's why I call it evidentialist, right? <laughs> if the goal of the Christian apologist is to defend the truth of Christianity, and if truth is understood as correspondence with reality, right? That's the kind of the correspondence theory of truth. Then an apologetic that emphasizes the factual reality of Christianity is mandatory. Right. Evidentialism is defined by the primary primacy that it assigns to fact. Right. So they stress the factual evidence as a way of showing uh, the truth of Christianity. Truth must be factually based, they argue, and Christian truth then can be verified by objective 
public evidence that's available to everyone, right? So they stress the factual evidence. So it's not all, you know, philosophical arguments, <laughs> pie in the sky, analytical type of thing. Just the just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Right. <laughs> and so th those are those are big, uh, big um, uh, uh, positives for the evidentialist model, especially for um, your uh, evangelism, for sp uh, speaking to um, just not, not so much the, the, the person, you know, on on uh, whatever social media platform, but just to your neighbor and just to uh, the, the normal everyday person that you're meeting. It's not so much to go, well, you know, let, let's look at premise one. Premise one says this, and then from the conclusion, this. No, no, it's just, hey, uh, let me tell you about uh, what, what has changed my life, and let's point to, uh, we know that Jesus existed, we know that he lived at, at, in Galilee, we know uh, that his apostles um, um, stayed with him for th this number of years, and then once he died, uh, something happened where they continued to preach his message, and so... That has a lot of uh, appealing um, um, factors to just normal everyday conversations that you have. And so uh, uh, we shouldn't shy away from that uh, type of approach because ultimately we're not uh, 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 appealing to apologetics uh, within the test tubes and the, the, the pillars of, of academia solely. And so uh, we, we, uh, we want to um, give, give, uh, give credence there as well. Well, unfortunately, with every positive, there is a weakness, uh, <laughs> even for the evidentialists. Uh, although when we get to other methods, uh, weaknesses uh, are, are going to be interesting. So uh, we're looking forward to that. But here, the weaknesses potentially is that uh, evidential apologetics has been widely criticized from a number of perspectives. And so here's where our authors will consider some of the most common and important criticisms identifying potential weaknesses in or challenges to the evidentialist approach. Right. So let's kind of dive into this. And again, there are three of these. And so we'll work our way uh, through these. So the first one is that evidentialists in this particular methodology and approach assumes the theistic worldview. They assume the theistic worldview, right? Now, the principal objection they tell us to evidentialism from a classical apologetic perspective is that it attempts to make a case for the theistic worldview on the basis of facts. According to both classical uh, apologists and uh, most reformed apologists, which we'll get to next time, <laughs> uh, this will not work, right? One must first have a worldview before one can interpret the facts in the world. So you have to have a view of the world before then you understand how the facts fit with that particular view of the world, right? Uh, Geisler, Norman Geisler, who we looked at when we were looking at classical apologetics, um, put it this way. He says, facts and evidence have ultimate meaning only within and by virtue of the content and context, rather, of the worldview in which they are conceived, right? So facts have meaning, events have meaning with regard to the uh, contexts with which they are conceived. He uh, adds that meaning is not inherent in historical facts and events. Meaning demands an interpretive context that is distinct from the facts and the evidence, right? right. So right. if I see a particular rock, you know, one person might argue, well, that rock is a result of millions and millions of years of, you know, all kinds of geological, uh, you know, operations that happen on that rock. And somebody else might say, 
No, I think it's just, you know, a few thousand years old, right? And so you have to look, you have to look at the worldview, the context in order to interpret the, the so-called fact that you're looking at. Right. And so that's that's the uh, that's the criticism here. It kind of assumes a theistic worldview. Right. Which uh, may not always be a negative. But here, uh, within the context of uh, the evidentialists, uh, it is uh, uh, seems to be the, the negative. And so, uh, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, even looking at the resurrection. Right. So here's the claims by a, a, a man who says, uh, um, you know, I'm I'm the way, the truth and life. No one can come to the father except through me. I'm the Christ. Uh, I, I am uh, the, the, the Lord of the Sabbath, all these things. Uh, and if you put your uh, faith in me, then I will for, uh, forgive your sins and pay for them. And uh, you will have my righteousness uh, imputed to you uh, fully and completely. And then he dies and rises again. Well, does that necessarily follow that what happened, even though he claimed uh, to come about, is exactly uh, true. Uh, can we trust that just because he was truthful in I will die and rise again is also true and that he'll pay for your sins? Well, it doesn't seem necessarily to fall completely. Uh, in the ever-expanding uh, universe where even the universe itself can come from nothing, even a, a person uh, could just be really, really lucky in saying that I will die and rise again and it just so happens he does. We just we just haven't figured out the natural course of events that made that possible. But people win the lottery all the time. And so here's just a, a big lottery. All right. So our second. Uh, uh, and and by of... the way, let me just say this with regard to the, the first approach here. This is why the uh, classical, as we saw when we examined classical apologetics, that they spend a lot of time um, defending a particular Christian worldview and attacking a non-Christian worldview, right? Because they want to make sure that once we get this worldview pers perspective, then we can, um, uh, you know, interpret the various facts that we find. Right. So the second one is that it uses hidden presuppositions. Oh, oh, this sounds familiar. Well, critics of evidentialism uh, contend that evidentialists work with hidden presuppositions about the nature of reality. For example, in their scientific and historical arguments, evidentialists presuppose that there is a rational structure to the whole of reality. Well, that's a that's a big thing to smuggle in. The entirety <laughs> of reality is smuggled in under this uh, under the skies of, of your evidence. Oh, that's that's weird. The heuristic methodological assumptions that knowledge is possible, that the universe is structured and that the senses can be trusted, cannot themselves be empirically sustained. So that might right. sound uh, put put your 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 note uh, here and then wait for wait for next chapter and see see if, uh, <laughs> if this is truly a negative. Maybe it's yeah. not. Maybe maybe this is something that uh, everyone does. Right, right, right. So they kind of have hidden presuppositions that they don't defend. Right? How? Uh, where do you get the fact that the senses can be trusted? How do you argue for that? Right? You haven't done that. You're just assuming that they can be trusted, and based on that assumption, now here is a fact that right. you find. Right? And so, yeah. So that hidden presuppositions. Um, now, evidentialists, our book tells us, um, are generally unmoved quite frankly, by these concerns. They uh, freely acknowledge that evidentialist arguments require certain assumptions about the reality of our physical world and the ability of the mind to perceive reality and the like. What the evidentialist wants is to 
not make arguments that are totally free of presuppositions, but rather arguments that presuppose only, and here it is, what must be presupposed to know anything at all. <laughs> and so this challenge to the evidentialist approach then identifies a real limitation, our book suggests here, of the approach, but one which um, evidentialists insist everyone must live with, you know, in order to know anything or reason about anything. Right. So everybody does this so we can too. Leave us alone. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and, and the, you know, if you if you listen to Habermas, uh, the minimal facts approach is kind of this. He's saying, listen, just give me these, I think, uh, was it, is it six or seven uh, base facts? And from here, any uh, normal working person with these minimal facts would almost have to conclude if they're being as objective as they can within the court of law or or being fair that Jesus died, rose again, and what uh, uh, was was observed uh, by other people to such a degree that we can be as confident with that as we can that George Washington was the first president of the United States. So so even even there. Um, they're 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 attempting to say okay uh, th th that's all true we have these base assumptions but so do you and so just give me these things and then from there I can I can prove the whole thing and we can quibble about you know uh, how many apostles there were or what have you so so yes that that's uh that, that's something that they're bringing in but also that still that still seems to be kind of a negative here hmm. All right, and then we're on to the the final uh, weakness that our authors have, have brought up here in the evidentialist model, and that it underestimates the human factor. Oh, well, both classical and evidentialist apologists are often criticized for an excessive uh, optimism in, in assuming that unbelievers are willing and able to examine the evidence of Christianity in an open, honest, and unprejudiced way. People have their biases, and sometimes you can't get over it. In fact, when uh, voir dire happens for juries, this this is exactly what is a step in the process to help mitigate that. Well, what happens when you have to preach to the whole world? Well, you can't just isolate people. You have to preach to the whole world. And so the goal for the evidentialists, uh, non-reformed, is that uh, that everyone is able to uh, uh, come in and approach uh, the, the message of the gospel and accept it. And so how, how does that factor in when someone who is completely closed off, whether for, you know, just good reasons, uh, you know, they've, they've been, uh, they've been tortured by, uh, bad people in the church, or, uh, they've, they've had, um, just, uh, um, bad interactions with dishonest people who claim to, to be Christians. And so that prejudices their way. Well, how do you, how do you overcome that? If you're just kind of tr trying to lay out the evidence, what, what more evidence are you going to stack on top of it that will, will, uh, have this, uh, uh, Christian, uh, 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 you know, dove movie moment where where they can't do anything other than what's written on the page for them. That seems to be the issue. Well, empirically oriented apologists in particular are said to place too much confidence in the persuasive value of evidences and erroneously assume a stance of historical objectivity, forgetting that the significance of historical facts is, in fact, determined by one's presuppositional framework. And again, you're, you're seeing that a lot these days when it comes to kind of the um the the, the reconstruction of, of different periods of history where 
oh, uh, these are the things that we were taught in school and uh, the, the, the big names have written books on it. Well, revisionists have come through and say, well, it might not be as clear as what we think about when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, the roaring 20s or uh, post uh, World War II or even the Civil War. And so we need to, to, to understand that um, uh, sometimes that, that objective framework is, is getting lost in, in, um, in one's worldview and how one approaches it. Right, exactly. So not only are they criticized for an excessive optimism and assuming that unbelievers you know, are willing and able to examine the evidence, but along similar lines, our author tells us evidentialists are accused of unrealistically minimizing the effects of sin on unregenerate cognitive uh, and volition, right? In other words, uh, they uh, dismiss or at least minimize the effect of sin on how people think and, and the decisions that they make. So according to critics, for instance, Montgomery and others, overestimate the ability of the unbeliever in Montgomery words to understand the factual nature of the world and rationally interpret the data of his experience. Uh, now, they do point out that some evidentialists uh, acknowledge the effects of sin on human reasoning, and they appeal to the common, though, and special grace of God in overcoming these cognitive and volitional barriers, right? But uh, it's there, and so that's a criticism that our authors want us to be aware of. You kind of, you know, unrealistically minimize the effects of sin on the unregenerate. You know, in other words, you're preaching to, as the scriptures say, dead people, right? <laughs> and you're expecting dead people to understand the facts and that sort of thing, right? And so if that's the case, you know, you... Uh, that you, you need to take that into consideration. And the, the critique here is that they uh, they minimize that. It almost seems like a, a certain type of miracle has to happen for those dead men to uh, get up and, and be able to listen. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, those were the, the positives and the weaknesses. What's the conclusion? What can we conclude from this? Well, so far, our authors have examined two models of apologetics, the classical and the evidentialist model. And in some ways, these two models are very similar. So if you if you want to quibble on, well, this, you know, you've got your evidentialist, my classicalist, you've got your classicalist, my evidentialist. We're all Reese's pieces within this this uh, side of the method. And so so both methods attempt to make a case for the truth of Christianity that will be accessible to non-Christians who follow the argument openly and honestly. But the two strategies share a common understanding of the uh, apologetic task that uh, commending the Christian faith to non-Christians on the basis of truth that they already believe. And so that's where they have kind of that that similarity that you might notice uh, uh, there. Uh, our authors are, are bringing that forefront here. Right. And so, you know, uh, our author suggested it's this very understanding of apologetics is at the heart of many of the criticisms made by both models. Right. In other words, we're just trying to appeal to the common things that everybody will hold to and that everybody believes. Right. And so that kind of, as we will see here, is going to be challenged in some of these other approaches. Right. Such an understanding has been urged, uh, uh, it, it has been urged that uh, it fails to take into account the great disparity between the Christian and the non-Christian mindsets, right? These are the facts that everybody can believe or that they can hold to, or this is the method that everybody uses, and therefore we'll go from there, right? Except 
the issue here is there is a disparity between the Christian and the non-Christian mindset. So that's the point that our authors want us to see. Right. And so these two models, many apologists now believe, both assume that Christianity can be proved to non-Christians on their own terms, right? That is on the non-Christians' terms without challenging uh, the non-Christians' most basic assumptions or presuppositions. And so to correct this faulty assumption, a third model of apologetics, which our authors called a uh, reformed apologetics, has been developed. And it's reformed apologetics then that we'll kind of take a look at next time, right? So the criticism here is, why do we need reformed apologetics? And the answer is because you're making too many assumptions about what uh, people are able to do, right? Uh, which is kind of interesting because that's kind of the claim that goes against reform apologetics, right? <laughs> you're, you're assuming too much. You're making too many <laughs> presuppositions, right? Right. But we'll see how that how that works out as we look at this uh, next, this third model that mm -hmm. they want to share with us. Yeah. And it should be noted, too, that uh, the the the. They do it historically, I think, as well, um, with a classicalist, then evidentialist, then reform, then with fetism. Uh, and fetism uh, uh, is definitely uh, within that time frame with reforms as well. Uh, but it's 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 the the grouping of those tends to make logical sense. In fact, the the, the five views of apologetics from uh, cross uh, cross points uh, uh, series from Crossway that uh, we allude to a number of times uh, in comparison with this book also has that type laid out where where you have kind of the two kind of three um, uh, more uh, traditional um, uh, ideas of apologetics and then uh, more the reformed uh, presuppositional models um, uh, following as well. And so um, our, our authors are in good camp here. And, and so uh, that's one of the reasons why we like it laid out uh, like this as well. All right, well, we've done classicalists, we've done uh, uh, evidentialists, and now we're not going to try and get too uh, giddy when we uh, when we go towards uh, the reform perspective, the presuppositional model, and uh, we'll uh, do that next time. So uh, if you are uh, keep interested in uh, what we're talking about, uh, pick up the book, Faith Has Its Reason, by uh, Kenneth Boa and Robert M. Bowman, Jr., and uh, all the links are available to you, and then keep uh, checking out uh, the other um, um, books that we've done, cavethecross.com for all those, your traditional podcatchers, and also uh, both uh, uh, YouTube and Rumble, and I think Odyssey is still having us as well. So uh, we'll, thanks, uh, we'll say thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.